Lord, we thank you that uh, you've called us out, and Lord, we do want to remember you've called us to be a people of praise. Lord, help us never to be quiet about how good and how glorious you are, but I just pray that from the youngest of us to the oldest here tonight, that each of us would just realize that your name is worthy, and I pray that uh, as we come and pray and study the word, Lord, that you do a work in our hearts that would spill out of this place. Lord, that you do a work in us that would influence those that, that we are surrounded by. So help us to really meet with you in a special way tonight. Please bless the kids, groups, and the teens, and then our adult time. I just pray that you'd be honored and glorified in all of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. You guys are dismissed, and the adults will stay in here for our second week in Christianity Explored tonight. If you did not get a handout, just put your hand up really quick. and There's handouts in the back. If the teens didn't get one in the foyer, there's a handout. If you did not get one in here, just put your hand up. We'll make sure that you do. Get that door, please. All right. Well, very good. Welcome to week number two. And this week's discussion is all about the identity of Jesus. So if you want to follow along tonight in your notes, of course, we're going to find our way to Mark's gospel. So we will be there. But also, if you remember, when we talked last week, we saw that the message of Christianity obviously is about Christ. It's the good news, which is the gospel of of Jesus. Now we get into the identity of who Jesus is. So how many of you actually uh, got to, um, you, you did the reading in Mark this week? Okay, so we've got a few of you. Now, was there any, um, any discussion, any questions or anything that came up from the reading that you did that you wanted just to quickly uh, bring up as a, uh, in the group? Anybody had anything written down from last time? We've got plenty to go over, so it's okay if you didn't. I just wanted to make sure we open that up. Anybody, anything at all? All right. Yes, go ahead. Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. So why did John baptize the, the baptism for the remission of sins? So the, you have to think of the use of the preposition for, right? It doesn't mean that the um, that the the, um, the that it caused the remission of sins, right? But it was they were baptized because of. So sometimes the word for is can also be like because of. So baptism for the for the purpose of sins remitted. So John would preach to them and say, "Hey, you got to change your ways because the Anointed One, the Messiah, is coming. You've got to change your ways. You've got to prepare for Him." So it was different than the baptism that would come later because Christ hadn't died yet. But um, the baptism itself, the going in the water, didn't, didn't give them remission of sins, but was also that outward symbol that they had, they desired the cleansing of their sins. So, yeah, that's a good, good question. Yes? Okay.
So they, all right, that's awesome. And it was after you'd read that in Mark. That's what. That's that is awesome. Praise the Lord. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. I want to give if you're in Mark's gospel, go ahead to Mark chapter four. We're just going to look at a quick account here. Mark 4. Now, it's important to remember, we're looking at, we're looking at the, the description of Jesus. When we look at Mark, remember, this series is designed to look at, look at the message of Christianity from a brand new perspective, as if, as if you're somebody that's encountering this for the very first time, or really preparing you to help someone who's encountering this for the very first time. So a lot of people would look at these accounts and all these stories, and some people might have a hard time believing, well, is this, could this really have happened? And there's going to be a series of miracles and, and amazing things that are recorded that Jesus did. Well, the important thing that we're gathering here is the people that were near Jesus, this is what they said about him. This is the historical record of the people who knew Jesus personally. And if we think of Jesus as a historical figure, we know if those of us who are believers, we believe him and we know him to be so much more than that. But if we just think of Jesus as a historical figure and we look at him that way, the people who knew him or claimed to have known him, what did they say about him? How did they describe him? That's what the gospel accounts are. That's what Mark's gospel is all about, the identity of Jesus. Now, getting identity wrong uh, can have different consequences, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. So let's look at this one account to kind of open it up, and then we'll see a little bit more. Mark 4, verse 35, and this is where we'll begin tonight. Mark 4, 35, just read a few verses. The same day, when the even was come, he, that's Jesus, saith unto them, let us pass over to the other side. And he's referring to the lake, the, the Sea of Galilee. He said, well, let's go over to the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. So all the, all the ships begin to move across the lake. And it says, And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they wake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Don't you care at all that this storm is so bad we're about to die? And very calmly he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. 
is what you, what you see here in, in this passage, I, I want you to know, is a really a climax account of the identity of Jesus being revealed. So put yourselves in the mind of the, the disciples. They haven't quite yet made up their mind exactly who Jesus is. You've got to realize that, too. Like This is early on. We're only in Mark chapter 4. They haven't quite figured this out. And so he's, he's, he talks to the wind, and he talks to the sea, and he says, peace be still, and there's a great calm. And he said unto them, why are you so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? In verse 41. And what, what is the result here? They feared exceedingly and said one to another, now notice the question they ask, what manner of man is this? What, what kind of a person is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? So pretty, you know, obviously here, the questions, what hope of surviving the storm did the disciples have? What hope did they have? None? Very little, at least. I mean, in their, in their, from their perspective, they don't. Why? Well, in fact, I don't think they have any. I think you're right, none. Why? What statement indicates that they had no hope? What statement do they make here that shows that they didn't, have, they didn't think they had any hope of it? Yeah, they said, don't you care? We're going to die. They expected, they fully expected to die in that storm. And I think in, for many of us, we've seen this many times, but imagine, again, look at it with brand new, fresh perspective. What is so remarkable about Jesus' method of miracle here. What's what's remarkable about it? Yeah. Right. There's no. There's. It's. It's just. It's. He never lost a. Never skipped a beat. Woke up from a nap, and spoke. He just spoke very calmly. It's remarkable. Now, something that's pointed out here is how similar. How similar this story is, this account, is to a well-known song from the Old Testament. The disciples, these men in the boat, they would have grown up singing this song over and over and over again, and it's recorded for us in Psalm 107. They that go down to the sea in ships. Now, I want you to look at it kind of carefully. Think about it. We'll have a couple questions afterwards. They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters. These see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then... They cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. What similarities do you see between this psalm and the account of, of Jesus and the disciples in the boat? I think there's, there's actually a few if you, if you follow it through. 
Obviously, the, the, the no-brainer is people are in a boat, and both of them, there's water involved. Are there any other similarities that you see in, in this psalm? What's that? What? So there's a command that he commands, and yeah, the power of the, of, to speak to it. God commands the, the wind. Something else? Other similarities? They're at their wit's end? Yeah, like what, nothing, nothing left that we can do. Anything else? Anybody else? Yeah. There's, a good, there's one up at the beginning, too. They that go down to the sea in ships, they that do business in great waters. These, these, what do we know about many of these disciples? Yeah, they're professional sailors of a sort because they're, they are, they're fishermen. There's a lot of, lot of similarities to what is, what is given here in the psalm. Anything else anybody notices? All right, there's one thing now that's different, though. The song and the story, see this number four, the song and the story end in two different ways. Two different ways. Why were the disciples, so if you, if you see that, how does the, I mean, how does the, how does the psalm end? The psalm ends with what? Praise, happiness, rejoicing. Yes, this is so wonderful. That's not how the story ends. How does the story end? The account. <laughs> yeah. Like what in the world? It's worse than that. It's like, who is this? It actually just describes these people, these disciples, as being what? Terrified. They're, they are totally and completely afraid. It says in, back in the, the, the passage, they feared exceedingly. They're afraid. Why do you think that is? Why are the disciples still terrified? after the storm had been calmed. I think there's an opportunity to go a little bit deep with this, this question. Why is it that the disciples are still terrified even after their immediate situation of danger has passed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> their fear goes from their, the storm to the person in the boat with them. Why Why though? Okay, there's fear because what they just witnessed is supposed to be impossible. There's a lot of, I mean, people assume like, oh, like people from the olden days, they just believed in all kinds of miracles and crazy stuff because they lived so long ago. No, the way, he, the way the universe has worked has been the same all along. People didn't, you didn't see these kinds of things happen. So they're, ter- they're terrified. This wasn't supposed to be possible. What they, what they perceived to be in the realm of possibility. And isn't this the way many people, when they encounter Christ, he, Jesus kind of upsets the perspective on what is possible. What is possible. Many people, when they, when, when they don't want to look at Jesus, they just say, oh, I can't believe that because it's just too impossible. Then the closer they get, the more they watch. The, be, the thought process, if God begins to work on their heart, they say, wait a minute, what I've always believed is in the realm of possibility. Jesus just may be turning that upside down. Any other thoughts on why they feared They feared exceedingly? I think there's implications that flow out of that. Because if this man, 
then, then what implications does that have for, for me? Yeah. If he can control the, the, very, the very elements of nature, then, then what, does, what does he expect of me? In fact, he called them to follow him, right? So I think there's that, that healthy fear, that understanding that, that Jesus, at this point, they don't quite know who he is. But whoever he is, whoever he is, is important. Because if Jesus is really a person who could do all of the things we're going to look at, if this is true then who his identity is, is of the utmost importance. You have to decide. And as much as people accept or reject different parts of the, of the accounts of Jesus, every person does have to look at the facts and say, well, who do I think Jesus is? So the question is identity. And in the reading from this past week, and in this talk that we're going to watch right now, there is a discussion of that question what is the identity of Jesus? Let's, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to do the video this week, but I figure you guys hear me talk all the time, so you can, you can listen to somebody else. It might be refreshing. So here we go. Not so long ago I was invited out to lunch and as I'd arrived a bit early I waited on the stairs just off the main dining room. Standing opposite me was another man, I vaguely recognised him but thought nothing of it. So as English people do we gave each other a sheepish nod and stood there awkwardly for five minutes in total silence. This lasted from 12.55 until one o'clock. Anyway at one o'clock a man came from around the corner, looked up at the man beside me and exclaimed, ah William, there you are, we're in the private dining room. Turns out it was Prince William. I'd been with him for five whole minutes and we had nothing better to do than talk to each other and I hadn't said a single word. And now I'd lost the opportunity. It could have been so different. I'm not saying that those five minutes would have changed my life and I don't suppose we'd have become lifelong friends or anything like that. But I know the conversation would have been memorable. Sadly, all I saw was a handsome, well-dressed 25-year-old with thinning blonde hair. What I didn't see was my future king. Now, in William's case, missing his identity doesn't really matter. I just missed out on a once-in-a-lifetime conversation, and arguably, so did he. But that's about it. Sometimes, though, getting someone's identity right really does matter. Because if we don't get Jesus' identity right, we'll relate to him in totally the wrong way, or even ignore him completely. And missing this king's identity would be disastrous. That's why Mark gives us the historical evidence we need so that we can recognize Jesus for who he is. Evidence that comes from the first-hand eyewitness accounts of people who spent years by Jesus' side. We're going to focus on five ways that Mark reveals Jesus' identity. Mark wants us to understand by showing Jesus' power and authority that Jesus really does have the right to be in charge, that he really is God's only chosen king. Our first block of evidence is about Jesus' power and authority to teach. Mark gives an example of this in chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. 
They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. You see, what set Jesus apart from the other teachers was the way that he taught. The teachers of the law didn't come up with their own material. They relied on the great teachers of the past and just gave their opinions on what others had said. But Jesus was very different. He didn't need to stand on anyone else's authority. He claimed authority of his own. And you can see the effect that this had on people. We read that they were amazed at his words and asked each other, what is this, a new teaching, and with authority? This young man, with hardly any education to speak of, was suddenly providing brilliant answers to questions that baffled even the wisest of teachers. So he could teach, but was Jesus able to live out what he taught? I have to say that this was the first thing that I found so compelling about Jesus. At 16, I started to keep a journal. I decided that I was such a great guy that I owed it to the world to preserve the details of my life. What I found as I looked at what I'd written was my own selfishness. There was such a contradiction between the way I presented myself in my journal and the way I actually lived in reality. But Jesus was no hypocrite. For example, he taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Later, as he was being killed, he prayed for his executioners. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Now that is practicing what you preach. But Jesus wasn't just a teacher. Our second block of evidence shows that Jesus has power and authority over sickness. One example of this comes in Mark chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Here we see Jesus demonstrating absolute authority over sickness. Just a touch of his hand, and the fever is cured. And this is not an isolated incident either. Three verses later, in verse 34, we read that Jesus cured whole crowds of sick people. Soon after that, a man with leprosy comes to him. It was a disease so terrible that no one even wanted to go near those who were suffering with it. Filled with compassion, Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the man, and his touch instantly cures him. Mark also tells us that Jesus cured people of spiritual suffering as well as physical suffering, releasing people from demonic oppression. By verse 12 of chapter 2, everyone is amazed, saying, we've never seen anything like this. As you might expect, someone with that kind of power does not go unnoticed elsewhere. For example, Josephus, a historian of Jesus' time, who was not a Christian, called Jesus a doer of wonderful deeds. Although people disagreed about where it came from, no one, not even Jesus' enemies, doubted Jesus' power. Then thirdly, and perhaps even more amazingly, we see that Jesus has power and authority over nature. Jesus and his followers are in a boat on the Lake of Galilee. And this is what happens in chapter 4, verses 37 to 39. A furious squall came up. 
and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Now the Greek word translated furious squall actually means whirlwind. As the waves break over the boat, nearly swamping it, Jesus' followers, some of whom are hardened fishermen, are convinced they're about to die. In their terror they wake Jesus. But Jesus simply gets up, says a few words, and immediately everything is perfectly calm. The disciples then ask each other a question we may be asking ourselves. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. However, in the next chapter, the disciples witness something even more astonishing. They witness Jesus' power and authority over death. That's our fourth block of evidence about Jesus' identity, and it's in Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Here we have a religious leader, a synagogue ruler named Jairus, in agony because he is powerless to help his young daughter, who is dying. Imagine the desperation and powerlessness you would feel if your own child was dying. That's the emotional intensity here. Death wasn't an issue for me until I was 16, but then my godfather was killed suddenly when he lost his footing on a cliff path. And then I discovered, for myself, how painful death is not least because it severs relationships with people we dearly love. And loving relationships are so hard to come by. I remember coming across a bereavement card that said, those whom we have loved never really go away. But that's a lie. That's the whole problem. They do go away, and we miss them terribly. Some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid. Just believe. Now what kind of a man is able to say to a grieving father, Don't worry, just put your trust in me. It's either the voice of a man who is spectacularly misguided, or the voice of one who is supremely confident of his own power. You've got to be very sure of yourself to say that to a man who has just lost his daughter. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. 
Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? Jesus tells them the girl isn't dead. She's just sleeping. Then he takes the hand of the corpse, says, get up. And the father is reunited with the daughter he thought was lost to him forever. The message is clear. It's as easy for Jesus to raise someone from the dead as it is for us to rouse someone from sleep. Now, if this is a man who has power and authority over death, surely it would be madness to ignore him, to say, I'm just not interested in this, or this is boring, or, well, that's fine for you to believe. One day, you and I are going to die. After the evidence we've just seen, the question we must ask ourselves is this. Can I trust Jesus with my own death? But I have to say, quiet, be still, and get up are not the most outrageous things Jesus says in Mark. For that, we have to go to our final block of evidence in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now those words really are extraordinary. Here's a man who presumably wants to be cured of his paralysis, and Jesus wants to cure him of his sin. Why would Jesus think sin was a more pressing issue than the man's paralysis? To understand that, we need to see what the Bible means by the word sin. A while back, a national newspaper had an article on the seven deadly sins, and the writer said this, In this day and age, sin has lost its sting. A bit of sinning is much more likely to be seen as a spot of grown-up naughtiness, the kind of thing that sends a delicious shot through the system. That's what many people think of sin these days. It's not very serious. It's a bit of fun on the side. But the Bible says that there's nothing nice about sin. Jesus always taught that sin is man's biggest problem. It's not paralysis, not global warming, not terrorism or ecological disaster or poverty, not lack of education or spiritual enlightenment, but sin. Sin isn't just doing naughty things. It's not just lust or laziness or whatever. According to the Bible, sin is ignoring our Creator in the world He has made. As we know, ignoring other human beings is damaging enough, to us and to them, and living without reference to the One who made us and gives us each breath is even more damaging. Because when I insist on my independence from the One who made me and sustains my life, it will lead to death. Not just here, but eternal death, described in the Bible as hell. So that's why Jesus homes in on the problem of this man's sin. And the claim that Jesus makes here is that he has the power and authority to forgive our sin. You can see how staggering this is if you look at the way the religious leaders react. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now they don't mind the paralytic being called a sinner. They know everyone's a sinner. Their problem is with Jesus claiming to be able to forgive sin. If sin is ignoring God in the world he has made, then only God has the authority to forgive it. After all, if we do a person wrong, then only the wronged person has the right to forgive us. And in this case, the wronged party is God himself. The question is, does Jesus really have the authority to forgive sin? Does he really have the right to identify himself with Almighty God? Or is Jesus blaspheming, as the religious leaders are quietly thinking to themselves? To answer that question, Jesus does something amazing. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. As if to illustrate his claim to have God's authority and power, Jesus immediately cures the man's paralysis with a few words. But the healing is not an end in itself. He doesn't do it with a flourish as if performing magic tricks at a circus. No, he cures this man and countless others in order to reveal to us his true identity. He is quite obviously behaving with God's authority and God's power and he expects us to draw the obvious conclusion. Mark shows us time and again that Jesus not only claims to have the authority of God, he also displays the power of God as he teaches, heals the sick, calms the storm, raises the dead and forgives sin. He acts in God's world with God's authority. Of course, if Jesus is actually God's son, then it really matters. It gets very personal. Do I recognize who he is? Will I listen to him as my teacher? Can I acknowledge that he has complete control over the circumstances of my life? Over sickness? Over nature? And even over my own death? Can I see that he is the only one with the power and authority to forgive my sin or to leave it unforgiven? Will I recognize him now while I have the chance? Or will I recognize him later when it's too late. <clears throat> you notice that he goes through, the point of this was to move through Mark's gospel kind of quickly to not miss the big themes. A lot of times, if I were doing this, I'd slow it way down and there'd be a message or a lesson on every part, which is good, that's helpful, but to see what is the picture of Jesus that's being being portrayed, I think it's really helpful to come, to look at it in that progression. So what are some thoughts, what are, what do you, what are some just general thoughts or feedback on how that evidence unfolds and how you see it 
as we looked at these passage these passages tonight. That's, that's interesting. It's, it's as if all of the things that are being demonstrated his authority over are many of them things that we have to deal with directly. And he demonstrates authority over, over those things. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. What else? Something that some, somebody would say something that stood out to you is think about the progression of Jesus demonstrating that authority. Revealing who he is. Oh, that's that's interesting. So a variety of witnesses. I don't think everybody could hear you. So there were rich people, poor people, people that were religious people, people who knew him, people who were strangers. A lot of lot of different types of people. And he still does the same thing, right? He still uses like lots of people that that people that I would be able to relate to that you wouldn't be able to relate to or you would be able to relate to that I wouldn't be able to relate to that speak to who Christ is. Yeah, that's that's a good observation. Somebody something else, Carl. Right. Right. He's fake. Right. Right. Yeah, they try to discredit his authority, but they never try to disprove what he's actually done. Right. Yeah. And if you were watching in the video, he also quoted uh, the historian Josephus, who wrote, didn't write a lot about Jesus, but there was the one reference mentioned that Jesus was a person who many people followed, who did amazing things, basically. Just a reference to <coughs> whether or not it, everyone believed it was irrelevant. All of the people in the day who followed Jesus were completely convinced that this is these were the kinds of things that they had witnessed. So, yeah, and the arguments of the opposition are not to disprove, but just try to discredit Something else, somebody as you see. Yes? Yeah, I think that's a whole page in 
right? So when, do, when, those storms, when those storms come in personal situations that we feel like the disciples. So that's a, like a devotional application to this for us to go away with. As Jesus, Jesus demonstrates all his power, there was also the personal connection that he made in each of these cases. There was a real family grieving a loss. The disciples were really afraid. The, um, uh, the people were really sick. And so Jesus meets the, the personal needs of the individual. So he proves who he is, but he also speaks to, speaks to people's hearts. Yeah. Any other last thoughts before we conclude tonight? Is there anybody, anything you've thought about, um, maybe any thoughts you've had about sharing your faith with others, or part of the purpose of this class is to also to, to help us be aware of how we communicate the gospel and whatnot. So anybody have any thoughts about that before we move on out? You gotta. You look like you're ready to... Oh, you face a little opposition. Where are you going? Where are you going? Yeah. Well, those are opportunities. That's that's awesome. Yes, sir. Turned it around on you. That's good. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. All right, so it reminds us, gives us um, tools, just an awareness that people need to know who Christ is. So, very good. Let's uh, close this part with a word of prayer, and at, after that we'll sign off the live stream tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had. We pray that you would help us to just appreciate you more, Lord, and uh, be be bold in, in sharing the faith and being wise and knowing how to, how to speak about you to others. Lord, use each of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.